atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Northern Kentucky University political scientist Michael Baranowski. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. Hey, Mike. Hey, May. How are you this morning? I am good. How are you? I'm doing okay. And uh, while we're talking about our states of being, I want to let listeners know that Trey, uh, who, who many of you know, has been battling uh, Crohn's disease at multiple surgeries over a number of years now, just recently had his latest one, but I have heard from him that he is recovering well and the overall long-term trajectory looks positive. And so, Trey, if you're listening, and I know you are, uh, get well soon. Hope you recover very quickly. And also, before we begin, I just want to say thank you to one of our new trial Patreon supporters. Matt, thank you very much for becoming a supporter. We really do appreciate it. And we have a lot we want to talk about today, but I thought we would start with, we well, we are recording this on February 24th, and that is, as many listeners know, the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the day before, the Biden administration announced a new round of more than 500 sanctions. And a lot of those were already in the works, but they're also tied as well to uh, the death of Alexei Navalny, which, if not directly caused by uh, Russian authority, certainly was uh, pushed along uh, through his treatment over the years. And also on Friday, President Biden called on House Republicans to approve that $95 billion supplemental aid package that passed the Senate, 70 to 29, that would include $60 billion of aid for Ukraine. So, May, any uh, any thoughts on the second anniversary uh, of the invasion or the uh, new round of sanctions? I guess it's just that you know, the American public seems to have lost their appetite for this war. Um, and, you know, the sanctions are going to barely hit the news and they didn't work the first time, obviously, second time, third time. They're not going to work whatever the goal is this time. And I think that is the problem is what's the goal? And so many people have no real idea of what the goal is. Is it now for Russia to stop killing its own citizens? Okay, great. Are we doing that in other countries? Is it to take back territory? Is it to just, you know, call it where we've got it and and get out of this, you know, or is it to pay Boeing and Lockheed as much money as humanly? possible so i don't know like two years in where are we what have we accomplished what what the american public don't know and i think that's the problem is just like there's no there's no feeling of unity purpose there's no goal driven anything and and so it just feels all very endless i guess which is not a good feeling I wonder the extent to which that's an American public thing and more divided along partisan lines, because 
polling definitely suggests that Republicans are far more uh, against any additional funding. In fact, there was a Wall Street Journal poll back in, I believe, December, so fairly recent, that found that did did break down by uh, partisan lines with uh, a slight majority of Republicans saying we're actually doing too much to help Ukraine. And and there's also, I'd say, Tommy, uh, Senator Tuberville from Alabama saying uh, in explaining his vote against that supplemental package, saying that Ukraine can't win and that once Trump gets in, he'll basically do a deal with Putin. And, And I guess, do you feel like the Tuberville statement is more or less where you and a lot of Republicans are on this now? So I don't really know. I think lost is really where people are. It's not a driving issue. I haven't heard a Democrat or a Republican come up to me and say, you know, the most pressing issue, the thing I think about when I wake up and when I go to bed is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. You know, like, it it just, it, it doesn't seem to me to be the thing that angers people, that drives people, that people you, that I don't know that that people care about, and so I don't. When you know, it's like, do you agree with Tup- Tuberville? Tuberville saying, you know, this or you know, this amount of money, or uh, should we, you know, is Nikki Haley? Special? I don't care. That's the problem. Is no one has given me a a benchmark that I can either agree or disagree with. And so if you haven't given me that thing that I can either say, yes, I agree with this end goal or no, I don't agree. If it's just, if it seems, if if I don't know the point, if nobody has given me the point besides don't you stand with democracy against bad guys? Yes, but the whole world is full of bad guys and the whole world is full of non-democracies. So that doesn't, that doesn't do anything for me. So I can't even tell you whether or not I agree or disagree with various Republicans' statements or not, because nobody has defined for me what it is we're trying to accomplish. And so I cannot explain to you whether the means that people are explaining are are good or bad. I just I've not I've no standard to to even put this conflict in to some sort of framework. And if I lived in Europe. I might feel differently um, with Russia being next door to me um, or, yeah, or if there was some, you know, clear path to to me that I could see whether that's increased cost of goods, I guess you could say, or but just in general, do you like good guys and in general, do you like bad guys? That to me isn't enough, and so I—that's I, my problem—is just a, a general sense of vagary and being lost in this whole skirmish. Got it. Uh, and 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 yes, I I, I often call the senator from Alabama Tuberville. I don't know why it is, of course, Tuberville. And <laughs> sorry, not that he's listening, but uh, I guess for me, it's it's things are much more clear. I look at millions of displaced Ukrainians. I look at hundreds of thousands dead. And uh, to me, the goal is pretty straightforward. It's to do everything that we can within reason to uh, assist Ukraine in 
pushing back, eventually pushing back this Russian aggression and also sending a signal to our allies around the world that we will stand with them and uh, particularly a signal to China saying that, hey, if you're eyeing Taiwan as we we know you are, uh, listen, we're going to stick with our friends and just we you should know that. But clearly, this is definitely something that differs across the, the partisan divide with a, a number of Americans. So. All right. Well, why don't we move on to the domestic front? And uh, the big story, one big story this week is that the Biden administration canceled $1.2 billion in student loan debt for around 153,000 borrowers. And this is part of the administration's larger push to cancel as much student loan debt as possible following that Supreme Court ruling in July of last year. That, they're admit, that the plan to erase over $400 billion in student debt, kind of in one fell swoop, uh, exceeded the administration's legal authority. Now, this latest debt cancellation focuses on a particular program, those borrowers, borrowers enrolled in the SAVE income-driven repayment plan, and they've been paying their, back their loans, at least it applies to those who've been paying back their student loans for at least a decade and originally took out 12000 or less in loans. And for every thousand over that, those enrolled in the plan can have their debt canceled after an additional year of payment after that 10 year uh, period, with everyone enrolled in the program receiving forgiveness after 20 or 25 years, depending on whether or not they have loans for graduate school. And in responding to this plan, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona told reporters the plan reflects our unapologetic commitment to deliver as much relief as possible to as many borrowers as possible as quickly as possible. We're providing real, immediate breathing room from an unacceptable reality where student loan payments compete with basic needs. And in the coming week, the Education Department plans to contact borrowers who are not in that SAVE plan, but who can't enroll in that to encourage them to enroll. Now, kind of pulling back to this point, the Biden administration has canceled around $138 billion in student loan debt for just under 4 million borrowers through, well, now uh, several dozen specific executive actions. And that's a, that's a big chunk of change, but it represents under... 8% of the estimated 1.77 trillion, that trillion with a T in student loan debt. In fact, that's the second largest source of the U.S.'s uh, total of 17.5 trillion in household debt. It only trails home mortgages, which are way ahead. They're 12.25 trillion. So, May, what do you think about this latest move by the Biden administration? And then we can talk more generally about canceling student loan debt. So, you know, this is kind of the smallest of all of the things that he's done, you know, 1.2 billion compared to his larger cancellation of 138 billion dollars. Um, I, you know, in a sense, I, I don't know if I necessarily disagree with the policy. So normally income driven uh, repayment cancellation is if you are making payments um, sometimes as low as $0, depending on what your income is over 20 years. So you enroll in these income uh, plans, you make payments or, you know, basically $0 payments 
for 20 years, then you get your loan forgiven at the end of that. This basically changes that regulatory framework to be 10 years, you know, at a smaller number. Question whether that regulatory change is legal or not. I haven't spent enough time. I'm sure there will be challenges. Um, you know, standing is always going to be the problem to those challenges. You know, you can't, people who are not getting forgiven haven't necessarily been injured. They just, they're not getting benefited and, and therefore you can't sue. So uh, the reason I think for the 20 year time period, um, usually paying a little bit more than Biden's plan is, it is one meant to protect uh, our federal funds which is, I think, a fine goal. But it's also meant to have people think before they take out money. And if you know that what you are going to do, that, that there's a chance that you can't pay it off, um, you're probably not going to do it. And and that's probably a good thing, right? Like you, I think that they're, that's rational decision-making. But when all of a sudden the rules keep changing and being able to pay something off uh, isn't part of your calculus, and you do things regardless of benefit to you, to society, to whatever, That's that doesn't always result in good decision-making. And so my problem with these types of, quote-unquote, forgiveness programs, which, of course, debt does not disappear, it's not canceled, it's not forgiven, Someone else is now responsible for that who did not take on the debt. So I don't think that cancellation or forgiveness is the right word. But that skewed decision-making when people go in to, should I take out this debt? And we're no longer encouraging people to think, well, can I pay it off? Um, instead, it's, can I manage it for 10 years before it disappears? Um, I, I, don't, I don't like the move in that direction. Yeah, I I guess my feelings on this are are kind of complex. I've said before about student loan debt cancellation that as a general idea, I'm not a fan of it because I don't feel it's targeted well enough. But on the other hand, if you're if I'm looking at it not just as student loan debt cancellation, but as sort of part of a broader plan to provide economic relief. I understand what the administration, I think I understand what the administration's trying to do because there aren't a lot of levers that they can pull. And so this is one, one, one way they have of providing economic relief where at least if the courts uphold it, they don't have to try to get anything through Congress. They can't do anything about the mortgage debt and those other sorts of debt. So what makes student loan debt different and unique is that there is potentially this lever they can pull, though I'm, I, I've said before, I'm a little bit skeptical of the legal authority to do this sort of thing. But as a way to provide just some sort of economic relief, I get it. I, I, I don't think it's the, the best way to do it, but I think it's one of the best tools that one of the best levers that the administration has to pull right now. But of course, you're right that it doesn't, well, it cancels the debts for those borrowers, but that money doesn't just magically disappear. That, that, that debt is, ends up being kind of pushed out to the, the broader taxpayer, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, if there, uh, the other problem is 
obviously Americans do have a tremendous amount of student loans, just like Americans have a tremendous amount of credit card debt, mortgage debt, um, car loan debt. Like there's a lot of debt out there. We are a very debt ridden society. So, you know, why, why student loans, you know, why, why focus on these loans specifically? And, you know, obviously I think there's a huge political angle to this, which is that this is perceived to be for some reason popular with young people and popular with black voters who, um, I think have a disproportionate amount of, uh, of, college debt. But if you look at the number of uh, Black Americans who have bachelor's degrees, it's like 20%. So you're actually helping, and maybe those are the people who Biden assumes are going to vote, but you're helping such a small number of the the population that you risk turning the 80% against you, right? So that there's the 80% who feel that this is unfair um, to help the twenty percent, and and so I, I'm just not sure. Even in a political world, whether these types of giveaways are going to ultimately be a good political strategy. And then my other concern is that the real problem is that college is unaffordable. You know, both my husband and I work. We plan to work all the way until our kids our college age, if they want to go to college, we want to be able to help them pay for it. And we don't like, it sounds impossible. Like university of Chicago is $90,000 a year. Not that, you know, I expect for anybody to just be given an opportunity to go to university of Chicago, but it's that that's the real problem. And so the New York times had this little anecdote of Biden making a campaign stop last month at a teacher who had about $125,000 in student loans who were canceled under one of Biden's programs. And he said that he was going to take that money instead of paying it back to the federal government, and he was going to invest it for uh, the college education for his own sons. Well, that's not, that's going to pay you nothing. That doesn't, that doesn't get you anything. So you're not actually saving these people money if the cost of college tuition continues to spiral out of control. And and I just think that 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 issue gets worse the more debt forgiveness that there is. College becomes more expensive the more free money that there is, and that is something that harms everybody except for the extremely wealthy. Yeah, and, and I certainly agree with the spiraling cost of college education being a uh, more more of a fundamental problem. But of course, a big thing that's driving that at the sort of colleges that the vast majority of, of Americans go to go to college, the, the state schools, uh, is that uh, starting at the you know the Great Recession 15 years or so ago, uh, states just really started to slash funding for their higher education system, and that that money had to come from somewhere, and so they just started to ask more and more of the students going. So I think that really, if we if we look to what's driving this in a big way. What's driving this is that a bunch of states made decisions to say, you know what, we're not going to provide this or at least to the same extent. And so figure it out on your own students. You know, uh, that may be part of it. And the states have these 
insane surpluses right now because of American Rescue Plan uh, Act money and, and the fact that they don't feel that they need to give it to their universities comes from somewhere. Why would you feel like you don't need to pay these universities? Well, maybe it's because the universities have unlimited money. Like they don't, they don't, they're not asking for it. They're not begging for it. They're not demanding it because their kids can borrow however much they want in order to make up the Delta. So yeah, there's a chicken or the egg problem, I guess, where um, the states did cut the money, but now the universities don't seem to like, at least I'm, I'm not seeing college administrators come on TV or the radio and demand more money from their states. I, I just, it doesn't well, you seem know, to I, be I, an issue. I think the problem is that the sort of colleges that are focused on in by the by the liberal and conservative elite media are those schools who aren't in that situation. I mean, I I spent decades teaching at uh, a school that's far more like what most Americans experience in Northern Kentucky University, and we couldn't just raise prices. We were we were set to say we had a council on post secondary education in the state saying, "Hey, you can only raise your tuition by one or one and a half percent." And like a lot of regional comprehensive universities, NKU has struggled mightily in this environment when the state has cut funding. So sure, things are going to be fine for the Harvards, the Yales, the University of Chicago's, but. And that is certainly the college experience of the sort of people who, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC, the New York Times, that's what they think of as college ads. But for most Americans, that's not college at all. And that's why I think this whole conversation that we see in the media is just so incredibly twisted from the reality that real Americans face, because these folks don't understand what real college is for most actual Americans. Well, you know, I think. I don't know how that ties into the de debt forgiveness necessarily, but um, I just I, yeah, sorry, I just meant in the spiraling cost and so forth, and that institutions that have you know billions of dollars in endowments and thing people and, and things like that are a lot better positioned to be able to help out students and handle this environment than the so many colleges that and universities that are struggling because they're you know they're, they're very different. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one, there, there's just so many ways to go about solving this problem that don't involve student loan forgiveness, um, including lowering the need to go to college, right? Like creating other pathways. But, but when people talk about these other pathways, they talk about it for other people's kids, right? and this is the Republican problem that I see a lot, is, oh, there should be apprenticeships. Oh, you should go to Votech. But then if you look at what those people are doing with their kids, their kids are all going to the fanciest private high schools in order to compete for the fanciest uh, private universities. So um, until I think it becomes real, and this is why I like people like uh, Peter Thiel, who I think gives $100,000 to kids who don't go to college and instead come do like a, an apprenticeship with him, like these types of things that are very prestigious. Um, that is what's going to, I think, help change this narrative of you need to go to college where there are fancy, wealthy, 
high trajectory careers that have nothing to do with whether you wasted four years of your life and money and not your money, but like someone else's money. Those types of programs, I think, uh, would be helpful. But, but really anything like almost anything is going to be better directed toward lowering or, or stabilizing the cost of college tuition than just, Oh, I decided randomly to give this random group of people $12,000, totally random cutoff, uh, a billion and a half dollars. It did that does absolutely nothing for the problem. So for me, the only thing I can see there is political pandering. And I just think that that's hugely problematic. And, and people would have thought it was problematic if Trump did it. And Trump sort of did do it in, in certain ways. Uh, and it was problematic then, too. Yeah, I, I don't entirely disagree. In fact, I think there's a fair amount of agreement between us on the, the, the fact that this really isn't a, a way to address the fundamental problem. I think it's a little more helpful than you do, but I think where we do come together is that this is a huge problem. It's not being addressed in any substantive, fundamental way. We're going to keep on, it will, it will stay a problem until we can figure out something that actually does get at the core of it. And this certainly is not that. All right. Well, why don't we move on uh, to a legal uh, story? Well, big story in the news this week. And May, why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about what Alabama's Supreme Court did and then we can get into what it all means? Yes. Well, if you read the news, then you will have probably seen that somehow the Alabama Supreme Court woke up from its slumber, made IVF illegal in the state and then went back to its life. When in reality, this is a little bit, I think, that that narrative is entirely wrong. So what IVF, uh, I'm sure everybody knows what that is, but, you know, obviously uh, fertilizing the egg outside of the uterus and then freezing the egg so that it can stay essentially indefinitely, but usually for about five years um, in a controlled environment. Um, you know, the pro-life community, I think, does have a interesting relationship with IVF. Some people are very in favor of it. They will sit there and pray with you and hope that your IVF works out. Some people are a little concerned that throwing away embryos. So at that point, you know, the sex of the baby, um, you know, this is a, this is a baby that, that is, it's a potential baby. Like, I, I don't, I don't know how else to put it. It's just not inside the uterus. Uh, there's something about throwing that away that feels deeply uh, problematic. But anyway, putting all that aside, this case is about uh, two couples who uh, had gone through IVF. They had their uh, embryos, you know, fertilized embryos, sitting, freezing in a IVF clinic. A patient somehow randomly got loose inside this clinic, went and picked up these embryos with their bare hands. It was so cold that the the embryos burned the patient and the patient threw the embryos 
and the embryos, of course, did not survive. So the couples sued the clinic uh, for for wrongful death, among other things. And Alabama has a wrongful death statute that lets you recover for the wrongful death of a minor child. And it has already been established in Alabama that a minor child includes not only a viable fetus, so a baby that could live outside of the womb, but a non-viable fetus as well. So there was a case from several, several years back where a woman uh, was in a car with a driver who was driving super dangerously, and the driver ended up wrecking and she lost her baby. She was able to bring a lawsuit under this wrongful death statute for her 12-week-old baby. So this is a baby that would not have survived outside the womb. So the question for the Alabama Supreme Court was, given that the law already says that non-viable fetuses are babies under Alabama statute, this has nothing to do with Roe versus Wade, nothing to do with the Dobbs, this is just how Alabama has long, you know, understood their statute. Uh, Is there an exception that we should make for IVF embryos? Uh, given that they're not in a womb, I guess, is is the reason why that that would be an exception. And basically, they couldn't find an exception in the statute. And there was one good question that was posed to the IVF center, which is, well, you want us to say that it's not a baby if it's not in the womb, but we are, I would assume, a few years out, however many years out from being able to completely surrogate uh babies outside of the womb from from conception to to you know quote unquote birth i guess there's not really a, a uterus there would that not be a baby just because it wasn't in a uterus and and the ivf clinic didn't really know what to say so anyway there's this complicated like how should we consider or what about partial birth abortion which is illegal also in many states um and at the federal level uh where the baby uh, is basically birthed and then you uh, break the head. So at that point, the baby is not in the uterus. Uh, so is that not, you know, is that not a baby? So anyway, it was, it was, it was basically just the law already says that non-viable fetuses are uh, kids under the statute. You haven't given us a reason why that needs to be uh, tied to babies who are in the uterus and so you know the the end result is yes this family can at least bring their suit for wrongful death they might not win there's a lot of other uh you guys signed a contract this and that like they this still is at the beginning stages of litigation not at the end but the reason why people think that this means the end of iw or of ivf is it uh it will raise the cost of IVF clinics because now they're so scared of getting sued because of, you know, any potential mishandling of embryos. So the question I think in order to save IVF in Alabama is not necessarily whether the Alabama Supreme court was right or wrong. Like they have a long line of precedent here it's whether there should be a carve out 
for IVF embryos. And that to me is a legislative question. So, you know, all, all complicated and, and then, and then, you know, throw on the, the just practical IVF people like it. You know, there are some pro-life qualms. I think it's an interesting conversation, but I think it's been blown very out of proportion of what actually happened here. And I think it's going to be very negative for Republicans to be on defense trying to explain why they hate IVF. Um, But Mike, I don't know. You're the Alabama Supreme Court. What are you supposed to do? I thought this was an easy decision and and based on the law, the right one by the Supreme Court. I mean, I read the... uh, I read the Alabama Constitution section 930 on the sanctity of unborn life. I read the statute on the wrongful death of a, a minor act, and it all seemed pretty clear to me. And so I, I, I can't disagree with the holding. And like you, I think that the the next step and seems one that a lot of folks, including uh, Donald Trump, are urging be taken is that the legislature uh, carve out some sort of an exception to that. And whether or not I think you can dispute whether or not they can simply do that through the legislative process or whether it requires a constitutional amendment. Uh, I think that that should be done and that will be done because, as you pointed out, a lot of people want IVF to be an option. And so, therefore, I think this will happen. And it's not just an Alabama thing as well, I should point out, or at least not, least not necessarily. There are 15 states that currently allow for some sort of cause of action for wrongful death of an unborn child at, at any state of development. And actually, Florida, I believe, is currently considering something like that. So this is an important issue and one that a lot of state legislatures are going to have to deal with. And I expect that they will. But I agree with you on the political side of thing. If they don't, Republicans already have a problem post Dobbs that they haven't quite figured out a way to work themselves out of. And this potentially only compounds it unless they can act and act uh, relatively quickly and clearly on this. Yeah. And I, I think people are are maybe alarmed that unborn babies count as babies under the law. Um, that seemed to be shocking, I think, to some people, but it's actually something that's very accepted, including at federal law. For example, if you are a pregnant mother, you can get food stamps for two, um, based on your unborn baby. And I think that that is a very popular policy and it's based on the idea, not that you have some sort of additional property that like which i think that was the alternative is do you treat the embryo the unborn baby as property something that is a something that you own that's been destroyed or do you treat it as a life that's been destroyed and you know this family they wanted to treat their uh embryos as a life they said in the alternative we will, we, we still want to bring suit. Um, and so we're willing to treat it as property. But, you know, treating unborn babies as life is the norm, not the exception in federal law. And so, you know, with criminal statutes, there's, you know, obviously, like, if you're going to kill a pregnant mother, you can be charged uh, with killing two people. So, 
I think that that should not be the shocking part. It is the norm. Um, but I guess my other concern is, is the public narrative and, you know, I'm shouting into the wind. What can I do? And this is, you know, Republicans own fault for not having like clear next steps after the Dobbs ruling. Um, but I'm looking at Abby Phillips' Twitter. She's a host on CNN, and she's a very fair person. I like uh, Abby's reporting. But she is interviewing an Alabama couple who went through IVF, and they said, it never occurred to me that people would t- take the overturning of Roe versus Wade and link it to IVF. Like, well, they're not. That's not that's not what's happening. They, these two things are completely, completely separated. But here are families in Alabama who are IVF families thinking that somehow the Alabama Supreme Court like saw that the the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that there's no constitutional right to abortion and therefore outlawed IVF. And and that is something that Republicans, I think, very unfairly are going to have to answer for. But we do need an answer. Right. Uh, to me, one problem is if if people want to say that an extra uterine embryo is not property but actually is uh, is life, right? Is a is an unborn baby, whatever term you want to use. Well, then, is it how do we understand, say, contracts between? a fertility clinic and a couple, well, is it okay if you sign a contract saying, well, if if we don't, you know, use these embryos, these extra embryos, they can just be disposed of. Isn't that mass murder? I mean, that to me is is a problem, I think, and a very real problem. If we're going to say that, well, these extra uterine embryos are life uh, that is protected under the law, well, then that protection just can't be wiped away because, well, I'm okay with ending that life and no one has a, you you see what I'm saying? I mean, isn't that a problem as well? Yeah. So I think that once legislators across the 50 states, not just in Alabama, actually get down to defining when non-uterine embryos are life or not, like that's a tough, that's a tough question because even if scientifically, I think you would say that there is a life here. They that Even when they're describing the embryos, these embryos have been gestated for a few days, as in wh- what happened a few days ago? Oh, that, that's when the thing began. That's when we started counting the days, like counting the days for what? For life, right? These are, they, these are a few days old embryos. Um, but just because something is life and we can recognize that scientifically they are a few, they've gestated a few days they have not implanted in a uterus um i think there are some some real question there uh you know there's a lot of standard birth control that uh the pro life movement has absolutely no problem with that is designed to prevent implantation of fully fertilized uh eggs and so so there there is there is a gray area that maybe um some people in their conscience may or may not be comfortable with throwing away uh eggs and maybe you should only fertilize the number of eggs that you feel that you can parent um and maybe some people do not have that and i think that those things maybe legislators in order to like kind of 
I don't if you know to to align with their pro life sensibilities can at least let people know. You know these these are embryos that are going to be a few days old. How many would you like to fertilize? Uh, sort of an informed consent, not even informed consent, just information. Um, but I, I don't think that the legislation necessarily is going to be easier or uniform across the board about what people do about this. Um, it, it's just things that I think people have not thought through. Uh, you know, there's just something much more clear cut about like a partial birth abortion than there is about a few days old embryo that hasn't implanted yet. And our our laws, I think, should recognize the difference between those two things just practically, even if morally, maybe there's no difference for some people. Um, practically, there is a difference. And I think it's perfectly fine to recognize those differences. Yeah. And as you point out, as the technology advances, this becomes more and more of a difficult issue. And we've seen this in so many other areas as well, is that uh, the technology tends to move much more quickly than our laws regulating technology, whether whether or not it's, you know, IVF or uh, AI or, or what have you. And this is certainly going to be a problem that not just Alabama, but a number of other states are going to be forced to contend with in the near future. All right, well, let's move on to a Another court, well, actually, a court case that wasn't, I suppose, I suppose you could say, and it's the Supreme Court's declining to hear a case coming out of Virginia. Uh, May, do you want to go into the background on this one? Yeah. So, um, Alexandria, Virginia has one of the highest performing, most desirable public high schools in the entire country. It is a magnet school, very selective. and until 2020, that selectivity was based on standardized tests, essentially. Um, and what happened after, the, you know, for years because of standardized tests is that uh, more than 70 percent of the student body was Asian. And if anyone's been to Alexandria, Virginia, it is not a 70 percent Asian community. Um, and this really was a problem for the board. Post George Floyd, there was a lot of conversation about this not being good. And so they decided to replace it with a, you know, point system for all sorts of things, but mostly a middle school quota system. So all of the middle schools, and this is somewhat reminiscent of the Texas top 10% program, but the middle schools that feed into Thomas Jefferson High School, if you are within a certain percentage of the top, then you have automatic admission, and that was intended to decrease the number of Asians. And sure enough, it worked. Um, the The number of Asians was roughly 50%, a little bit more than 50% after that. And the board of Thomas Jefferson considered that successful. Uh, so here's the problem though, uh, our constitution, which does apply to federal public schools or federally funded schools um, and state schools, says that you can't discriminate based on race. And discrimination can either be something that's overt, no Asians allowed in this school, or it can be something that has a discriminatory purpose or discriminatory intent. And I think that you know, everybody with 
you know, eyes really saw, oh, this looks like it has discriminatory purpose or discriminatory intent. And so the school lost in the district court. School appeals. And the Fourth Circuit says, actually, this is not discriminatory what they did because uh, the number of Asians at Thomas Jefferson is still higher than the number of Asians in the community, basically in the middle school feeder community. And so it can't be discriminatory because there's still, you know, in a sense, too many Asians. Uh, so that was that is a wild and a wildly incorrect way to interpret non-discrimination law. Like you, if you take that principle and apply it anywhere else, it would never be accepted. So based on that insanity of the Fourth Circuit alone, it was very much, I think, likely that the Supreme Court was going to take this in some way, at least just reverse the Fourth Circuit summarily, but maybe hear this full out. And the Supreme Court last week rejected to even hear the case. And Justice Alito wrote a uh, dissent from that decision saying, I mean, at least the Fourth Circuit's reasoning is wrong, right? But that wasn't enough. So there's now a lot of, you know, why? Why did they do this? Um, and, I, you know, I've got my own theories, but Mike, why didn't they take it? Well, you know, I think it's interesting, right? Because it seems to me that what this means, at least it's always reading the tea leaves, right? Because we only see the side of the dissenters when uh, the court decides not to take a case. But why didn't uh, Justice, you know, Chief Justice Roberts or Justices Kavanaugh, Gorsuch or Barrett, why did they not agree with the arguments of Alito and Thomas? And well, we can't know. And I was I was puzzled. So I looked at, you know, I looked at the Fourth Circuit ruling and then I looked at I read uh, Justice Alito's dissent. Uh, and it seems, well, I guess a little odd to me because as I as I read it, essentially what the Fourth Circuit is saying is that, hey, number one, there's no disparate impact on Asian-American students. You you've discussed that already. And also we can find no discriminatory intent because even if there isn't desperate impact, if there's discriminatory intent, well, then strict scrutiny would apply. And the, what the Fourth Circuit said is neither of these things hold. And so, therefore, it's just a rational basis level of analysis. And under that, what this what this high school did is just fine. And that that at least seems open to question to me, which is why. It seemed odd to me that the Fourth Circuit didn't just issue this ruling, but they also issued a summary judgment for the board because, gosh, to me, it seemed like there's at least enough in dispute in the record to suggest that this should work its way through the district court level. So I got to say, I I found this to be a a, a really puzzling decision. I don't get it as, as a matter of law and precedent as I understand it. And I would say you probably have a better sense of why those four other conservative justices on the court decided that that wasn't going to be something they were going to take on. So what do you think is going on here? So uh, my sense is that in the recent Harvard and North Carolina affirmative action cases, 
the court said, uh, basically reiterated that you can't discriminate on the basis of race and, and you can't just claim diversity and then discriminate on the basis of race. Uh, that that's not going to be a sufficient strict scrutiny rationale. But then there was kind of a carve out for you can do other things, kind of, to increase your diversity. So you could have a low income uh, program. You could have people talk about their life circumstances, but you can't do indirectly what you couldn't do directly. So you can't just use other proxies, zip codes or whatever, and discriminate on the basis of zip codes, knowing that zip codes are a proxy for race. Or, But so, so it's, now you've got some gray area. You can try and increase your diversity, but you cannot do indirectly what you can't do directly. So where, what, what can you do? And that's going to be a difficult question. And I think a lot of universities are going to try and do things like top 10% in Texas and uh, here in Virginia do a more middle school, you know, that, that type of thing. And so maybe, maybe what the Supreme Court wanted was a vehicle where they could affirm, where they could show someone is doing it correctly, right? So uh, the way that this school has done their, uh, you know, increased diversity program is something that we like. And so in explaining something that we like, we can kind of have the model rather than just whacking all these other things because, uh it it is going to be whack-a-mole. There's going to be so many schools doing so many things that are not right that maybe the better way to address it is to take the gold standard. And so you can't be like Thomas Jefferson and say, and like have emails basically saying there's too many Asians and, and, and then changing your entire system in order to reduce Asians and then celebrating that there's less Asians. That's not good. But instead of just us as the Supreme Court bang, 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 shooting down everything that isn't good, maybe a better way is, is to find something that is good. And and so that that vehicle problem is the only thing that I can think that maybe is the reason. Yeah, I, I guess so. But it seems if this is, obviously this is not a gold standard case, because like you said, it seems to me that in reviewing what happened, that it's exactly what that board did. It said, how can we how can we get fewer Asians into this school? And there, I mean, that's on the record, right? In, in emails and texts and so forth. And so I would think if you want to send a message to school districts, whether it's high schools or colleges, you know, across the country saying, you can't do it this way. I think that diversity is a, a compelling and important thing. And I believe that there are ways to, uh, to increase diversity without uh, without violating the Fourteenth Amendment, right? But but I don't know that this is a great example of that. So it's weird because I feel myself torn because I'm absolutely for healthy diversity in educational institutions. I've seen how it can matter in so many ways over the course of you know decades. But gosh, this seems like the bad way to go about doing it. I agree. So. Um... Yeah, I 
I guess we just continue to see lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit um, until the Supreme Court takes one. Um, but in the meantime, I think we're going to just continue to see the proliferation of some mechanisms to maintain racial quotas uh, that are maybe more harmful than just the straight up racial quota would have been um, to begin with because sort of they're underhanded. But so it was disappointing. I was not, I, you know, I wish they would have taken it. And yet I have some faith that there's a reason why. And, uh, and eventually we will not have racial discrimination in our schools, but until then we will just continue to bring the lawsuits and see what happens to them. Yeah. I, I disagreed with, a lot in the Harvard ruling from last year. But going by that ruling, one of the things the court said was that not that racial plus factors, if you will, are are uh, always wrong, but that they are subject to that strict, strict scrutiny level of analysis. And also, and I think this is important, that they have to be sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review. And so, in other words, you can't just say, well, diversity is a good thing. And that's what we're doing and why we're doing it. The court has said that's not enough. And whether you agree with that standard or not, that's the standard the court has set down. And I, I don't know yet that that high schools and colleges, other educational institutions have quite figured out. And I think you're probably right that through this process, the sort of uh, individual individual courts and as you said, whack-a-mole, maybe that's that's it's it's really a challenging environment, certainly. All right. Well, with that, why don't you know we're at that point and there are still a bunch of other things we wanted to get to, but we won't be able to get to them on our weekend show here. They will be part of our midweek show. And that includes we're going to be talking about Republican presidential politics, uh, some thoughts on the uh, Trans people, a listener question about that based on a previous uh, episode May and I had. Uh, some things about presidential greatness and uh, what we think our ideal presidential candidates might look like. All that's going to be on the bonus show. We hope you'll uh, be around for that. And of course, if you're a supporter of the show, you will get the full-length bonus show as well, sorry, midweek show, as well as ad-free versions of everything we put out there. And to check into all of that, go to politicsguys.com slash support or patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't remember all that, God knows I couldn't just check out the show notes. We have all of that stuff, all of our support options. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you subscribe and rate and review us on whatever podcast app you listen on, as well as sharing episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can do that through mail at politicsguys.com. There's the Discord channel for our all of our Patreon supporters, as well as Facebook and X. And again, links to all of that are Links to all of that stuff are in our show notes. And finally, as always, I want to send out a very special thanks to our fantastic executive producers. They are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.